of a series. Woohoo! Yay! So y'all have been ba- bearing with me as we look at, ooh, that was an adolescent moment. There we go. My voice just kind of went there. As we have been looking at these foundational stories in the book of Genesis, uh, the beginning of the five book, or if, if you will, when they were first written, the five scroll section of the, of the Bible called the Torah. And we've been looking at Genesis and how these overlaps are the, the places at which God and, and, and us, uh, heaven and earth, come together. We've also been looking at some negative overlaps, some places in which we uh, lose ourselves to perhaps the deceptions of the world um, or our own misconceptions of how this story all works. And so it's great to have that grounding. Uh, today, we finish with one of the most epic stories in all of the Bible, the story of Joseph. It's epic because it lasts for about 13, 14 chapters of Genesis, a big chunk. It may only be second to Abraham in the book of Genesis, but it has quite a long, twisty tale, um, and we can't read all of it today, um, but I recommend doing that at some point. Uh, Yeah. We'll be reading these scriptures as we go through the sermon so just be, be ready for that. It'll start at Genesis 37, um, but we'll get to that in a second. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it brings life. Lord, we thank you that you are life, that you bring us back to life. And oftentimes we forget that, and we join the powers that bring death. God, in your word today, help us to be enlivened and reminded by this epic story about the life that you bring and what that looks like. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. What happens when you go underground? Underground. What's that? You get dirty. You get dirty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 1920s, a Chattanooga businessman had a thought. He was going to go underground to uncover the entrance to a cave, a natural cave that was covered over by the railroads. He started digging through the limestone, drilling through, he and his team, until they found an opening in the rock. And that opening, get ready for this, for those of you who are claustrophobic, you may need to just leave the room, you might start to get panicky. It was 18 inches high, that, that's about right, and four feet wide. And he and his team, Leo, uh, Leo Lambert, got into this little shaft and crawled most of the way on their belly. They, they went through it for 17 hours. It took six hours until they were able to find just one spot where they could stand up. Six hours in that little space. And they crawled and crawled and crawled until finally they heard this sound. Make no mistake, it was the sound of water. Leo and his team finally came across a large chamber. They held up their lanterns to see one of the most majestic underground waterfalls that's ever been discovered. It's called Ruby Falls. It's in Chattanooga, and it's under this mountain called Lookout Mountain. It 
is 1,120 feet under the surface of the ground. That's the size of the Empire State Building, underground. What happens when you go underground? What happens when you go down? The question, as it was imagined by the ancients, is a little bit different than the way we interact with it. We often interact with that idea scientifically, right? Physics and, and math and everything. And that's great. I'm, I'm a product of that age. I it fully endorse that. It keeps me alive in many ways. But the ancients thought about being underground as something different. They imagined it as a place of the dead. Now, you can, like, forgive them for that. Why? Because that was their experience. Someone died, you dug a hole, you put them in, you covered them over. It was the place of the dead. This was also an idea in the Hebrew Bible. It's a place called Sheol. Sheol, a place where the dead go. The idea of the grave and everything associated with it became part of the imagination of these people. As we've already talked about in previous sermons, it represented the enemy, not of God, but of us. And that enemy is death. It was our supreme enemy. Death, the grave, underground. In our passage today, we meet Joseph. He was his father's favorite son. Do we have any favorite sons or daughters out here this morning? No one will be willing. Oh, here you. Some of you are only children. I should see my wife raising her hand just by default. Uh, I was a second. I've, it's joked. I am not the favorite, and my brothers may be watching this. I'm definitely not a favorite, but I was always the good boy. I don't know why I didn't become the favorite. I don't know. Well, Joseph was his father's favorite. He was also a bit clueless. He had dreams that demonstrated great things for him, so he decided, in haste, to tell his family, oh, guys, guess what? All of these things, great things are going to happen to me, and you're going to acknowledge that about how great I am. His older brothers and even his father, Jacob, aren't too thrilled with this. Even the, f- the favorite son, he seemed, perhaps on reading, it doesn't say it in the text, but he seems a bit cocky, kind of just unaware of maybe human stuff that you don't go and brag about these things. One day, Jacob sends his son Joseph out to check on his brothers out in the field. The field. Now, you may remember that word somewhere else in a story in the Bible. Out in the field. The last time this is seen, the field, is one brother rising up against another to slay him. And so, if you're following along with this story and you see the word, the field, and brothers, you start to perhaps think in your head the line, the famous line from the haunted mansion, your cadaverous pallor betrays an aura of foreboding. It's one of my favorites. It... In other words, in other words, you know something bad is about to happen. And it does. As Joseph goes out to the field to see his brothers, Genesis 37 tells this story. As I can turn, I have a few scriptures I need to read. There we go. Genesis 37, starting at verse 18. But they saw him in the distance. 
And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Reuben, one of the brothers, speaks up and urges the group not to kill their brother Joseph, but rather to just throw him into, we see the word cistern here, it's the word for pit, it's a hole. And this pit is the same word that the Psalms will later use as a metaphor for what? As a metaphor for what? Sheol. Death. The grave. Make no mistake, the text is telling us something about this story. Joseph is about to die. And maybe not in the way you'd expect. The pit. The grave. The pit. The end. The brothers do not leave Joseph to die. Instead, they end up taking him out and selling him to slave traders, heading south, going down. Where do they go? They go down to Egypt. This is a a long and winding road, and and the only direction you see in Joseph's first part of the story is, is this, is a descent. In every way, the text cluing you in on something about this person's life of how it just does this the whole way down, 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 down. He dreams that the sheaves of grain his brothers are binding stand up and bow down to his who is in the middle. He's telling his brothers something about what he is dreaming about, about his destiny. And he he wants them to know of it. They're not happy, and then he dreams again. And this time, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bow down to him. It's a little more even explicit. Did I mention that he has 11 brothers? His father rebukes him. He says, do you actually think your mother, brothers, and I will bow down before you? Joseph seems to think so. Joseph is setting the stage for his ascent. That's what he's doing. Up the mountain, up the ladder, up the leaderboard, up, up, up. But that's not how the story unfolds. We've caught this bug in our culture pretty badly. Some of you remember, uh, may remember the infamous interviews. There's a, there was a, a, a slew of them by the actor Charlie Sheen, and I don't want to pile on him. This was a while ago. It was a pop culture moment. But in these interviewers, he tells the interviewer, there's nothing, excuse me, there's winning, and there's losing, and there's nothing in between. When asked, how do you plan to win, Sheen answered with zeal and focus and violent hatred. I bring that up not because I want to pile on Charlie Sheen, He even later said, hey, this was a weird time in my life. (laughs) He said it. He knows. He knew it, right? We all have these moments. He he is, though, saying something that I think hits on some of the, the zeitgeist of where we live today. Right? The winning with zeal and focus and violent hatred. And how that plays out, not just in politics, but sports. Right? on playgrounds and school and business. 
You see, God doesn't want us to climb. God isn't asking us to win. God calls Joseph's great-grandfather not to beat others, but what? Bless others. (laughs) He doesn't say, go out and beat everybody. He says, no, go out and bless everybody. This isn't a punishment. in In our minds, we may have been trained to think, oh, that's a bad thing. It's like a punishment or a curse. No, no, this is God telling us this is the way we're wired. And this is the greatest way to commune with God. We find out later that God's own son, Jesus, God incarnate, that's exactly what God does. And it's not just a a sad concession. Uh, The author, I think it's actually Revelation says, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus. Going down is part of who God is. Climbing creates chaos. Self-exaltation won't work. And here I am standing on a stage, right? Just like, you're like, oh, talk to yourself. It, it just won't work to work life out to your advantage or the advantage of your family and friends. If that's what you're all about, we, we sometimes miss what God has for us. It's not God's way. Climbing creates chaos. The second truth is this. Descent or descending defeats delusion. Descending defeats delusion. What's the delusion? Well, we'll get to it. But there's a trope in our culture, a story that gets replayed in different movies and and things that captivates us. You could call it maybe the lovable loser or the underdog or whatever it is. It's the someone who may can't, maybe cannot catch a break, but through perseverance and hard work, they find a way around it and, and succeed. Make no mistake, this is not Joseph's story. Really, it isn't. The, the story is very clear that it's not Joseph who does anything. It's God who does everything. In all those stories, the hero finally breaks through with perseverance. They defeat whatever is holding them back. But Joseph's story continues to descend, descend, descend. And he doesn't do anything to fix it. God steps in, but this time with a twist. It's a great little twist. What does the brothers call Joseph? The dreamer. dreamer. He's the dreamer. Only now, he doesn't have dreams. He interprets them. His cellmate has a dream, two cellmates. One of them uh, has a dream, and Joseph said, hey, this means that you're going to die. Ooh, horrible, hard thing to have to say to someone, right? And the other person, he said, you're actually going to be exalted back to, to be with the king. And when that happens, don't forget me. Please don't forget me. Tell the king. Well, what happens in the story? It says, the man did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Two years pass, and Joseph is languishing in a dungeon. Now, prisoners, this is interesting about uh, prisons in the ancient world, jails and things. It's not like today, right? You don't have, like, the prison system feeding you and clothing you and all that. You actually didn't have that back in the ancient world. Most of the time you went to prison, pretty much all the time, you had to have someone bring you food that knew you. You weren't fed in there. They didn't take tax money and give you food. So you were either killed in prison or you were exiled and told never to come back. And if you came back, then you were killed, right? And so Joseph is there how many years? Two years? 
He's there two years. Something is wrong here. For some reason, even in his story, his prison sentence is pretty bad. You're not in prison for two years most of the time. And so finally, Joseph gets a chance to get out. Before I tell you that, let me just say this. One night, I invited a group of men from AA to speak to our students in high school. One of them was a wealthy businessman, former wealthy businessman. Because of his addiction, his wife left him. He lost contact with his children. He hemorrhaged money. Pretty soon, he was broke, hurting, homeless, and hopeless. It was in that moment, remembering back, he told our students, he sat there, he said, my life felt like I was hanging off a cliff. At first, I was grasping this rope off the cliff with my whole body, everything I had. And then I started to slowly slip down and down and down the rope. My legs lost contact, and pretty soon I couldn't hold on to it anymore in my chest. I had two hands, and one slipped off. And I was hanging by one hand on that rope. And it was when I was at the end of the rope. That's when I saw. And the guy sitting next to him, tell him what, says, tell him what you saw. <laughs> and he said, at the end of my rope, I saw God. Amen. It was in that moment when there was nothing left. When he had nothing, he was at the, the lowest of the low. God was there, ministering to his soul. Yes, it takes some people that to, to, to recognize that. Some of us still haven't. Some of us even play the game of religion because it was something that was given to us by parents. I, it was given to me by my parents. I've played the game a long time. And it's not a game to get me up here on this stage. It's a game that just part of our culture. And that idea of just falling down the rope and hanging on one hand, God is there. When all fades away, you have nothing to rely on. God is there. The descent defeats delusion. Nothing will save you other than God. Amen. Revealed in Jesus Christ. The third truth is that low leads to life. Don't you love the alliteration? I just love it. Low leads to life. Like last week's story of Jacob and Esau, this week's story sees Joseph meeting his brother, brothers, again. You see, Joseph would be remembered by his cellmate. Pharaoh himself would need a dream interpreted and ask Joseph for the interpretation. Joseph tells him this, quote, I can't do it. It's right there in the text. I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph knew, it's not me. I'm already at the end of my rope. There's nothing left. I got nothing. I can't do it, but God will. The boy who uh, was a bit too big for his own britches became the man who found God at the end of his rope. So God interprets the dream through Joseph. A famine is coming and Egypt needs to prepare. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of this initiative to prepare the country. 
Egypt prepares, the famine comes, and then so does everyone else in the area. Everyone who is starving, who doesn't have food, they come to Egypt looking for food. Egypt gets wealthy. Joseph is honored as the Pharaoh's right-hand man. Because of the great famine, brothers, Joseph's brothers go down also to Egypt looking for food. They meet Joseph, but they don't recognize him. Maybe he's got a nice beard or one of those beautiful you know, Egyptian hats. You can imagine the intense emotions for Joseph in that moment. What must he be feeling about his brothers at that time, seeing them come? He could have had the last laugh. But Joseph decides to test them. This is a a territory that typically only God does that. Joseph actually decides to test the brothers. They have a choice to abandon one of their brothers, the youngest, Benjamin, and save their own lives, but they don't do it. One of the brothers, Judah, tells Joseph, whom he still doesn't recognize, he says, he would rather sacrifice his own life than give up his brother. And Joseph's hearing this as the one who was sold into slavery by his brothers. How would you feel? Would you be angry? Well, here's what Joseph goes through. Genesis 45 continues this story. Verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. He wept. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. The brothers think Joseph may soon come to his senses, And be like everybody else and get revenge. But Joseph hammers home the point in verse 19 of chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them 
and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is now an older man. He's got something extra about him. It's interesting as the scriptures talk about this spirit of wisdom. It's not used very much. The spirit is spoken about in the beginning of Genesis, but it kind of disappears until Joseph. The Bible tells us that Joseph has this spirit, the spirit of wisdom. See, Joseph's descent got rid of all of those distractions. And because of that, it led to life, the saving, it said, of many lives. Descending is not about us giving up, right? It's not about quitting our jobs or ruining our relationships. When you descend, you actually find out it's not about you at all. It's about God and what God is doing in this world through Jesus Christ. It's about what God will do through us when our attitudes are the same as Christ Jesus. The only way up is down. Descend, don't defend. Be generous. Be a servant like Jesus. Trust that God will do the rest because at the bottom of the pit, at the end of the rope, God is there. God is there. Amen. I'd like to invite the musicians up in this moment. Typically I pray and y'all bow your heads and with your eyes closed, they come up. <laughs> but they're coming up with your eyes open. Here's what we're going to do today. There's a prayer that some of you may know, something that was really rich in our culture during the First and Second World War, and I've seen it at times. It's called the Peace Prayer of St. Francis. The Peace Prayer of St. Francis doesn't have to be about war, because if you read it, you see this deeper humility, this descent. I'm going to ask you to do something. You don't have to do it. You have two options. First thing is this. I'm going to ask you if you can get down on your knees in front of you. If you can, great. If you can't, some of you are like, don't you even. <laughs> then you don't have to. Just bow low, wherever you may be. Maybe your head on the, the pew in front of you. Get as low as you can, and I'll join you. Let me read for us peace prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, Grant that I, that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying 
that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Please stand as you are able as we continue worshiping God.